Philosopher Martin Buber's life had a lasting influence on the religious landscape. As a Jewish person in the early to mid 20th century Germany, his life was impacted by forces that sought only division. But Martin would make bringing people together his life's work. This is Logosish. Today we discuss Martin Buber's life with Dr. Paul Mendes Floor as we reflect on his new biography, Martin Buber, A Life of Faith and Dissent. You may hear some mild technical difficulties in today's episode. We were talking between the eastern coast of the United States and Jerusalem, so there's quite a distance there, and the internet did struggle occasionally to keep up. Hey everybody, welcome back to Logos-ish. We have reached our next awesome episode this week, dropping at this very moment right now, right here. I am joined by Garrett Roca, Brian Betcher, and Sarah Relaford, and of course, as always, I'm John Hoyne. Our topic of the day is the life and thought of Martin Buber. It's going to be a great episode. How's everybody doing today? I'm doing pretty great, John. Um, It is a foggy and mild day or morning in Florida, um, but the sun hasn't burned off everything yet, so kind of living in bliss at the moment uh it was a it was a nice walk over from the parsonage (laughs) now gary you live close to tampa which had some sort of sports win this week um did you see any uh any i don't know uh action i guess (laughs) was anybody jumping up and down on your car in the streets uh well we didn't have celebratory um uh, street parties, but uh, there were quite a bit of fireworks over uh, Tampa Bay's win uh, of the Super Bowl. I watched about 20 minutes of the game and 60 minutes worth of commercials, um, and our small puppy dog, Fox, was terrified of all of the uh, of the fireworks going off. So. Garrett, I need to fact check you. It was not Tampa Bay's win. It was Tom Brady's win, right? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I can't confirm or deny. Uh, well, he's the goat, so there you go. And it's obvious about that. Uh, and I would like to say that I slept through the entire event because I had to be at the airport at 5.30 in the morning. So I found out the next day. Why did you have to be at the airport? One of my uh, volunteer like coordinators for ministry needed to be dropped off at the airport to go visit family who are... Um, getting the COVID-19 vaccine and uh, they had some side effects to their first dose. So they were going home to care for them in their second dose. Well, that sounds like a noble cause. I realized just now as I asked that question that I should probably not just be asking you to share all the personal information of you and the people you know on this podcast. I did my best to avoid that. So, you know, it's okay. Well, I appreciate that. Well, why don't we launch into our topic today? Our guest is Dr. Paul Mendes Floor. He's a professor emeritus at the Hebrew University and is calling in today from Jerusalem, correct? Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, Dr. Mendes Floor, tell us a little bit about yourself. About myself. I have well, with reference to the project that you wish to discuss, Martin Buber. My interest in Buber uh, goes back to my youth when I was 17. I lived in a kibbutz for a while. And kibbutz, as you perhaps know, is a communal settlement where the nature of community or the the challenge of community is crucial. How to create a a meta family where we are, our relationships are crucial. Crucial in the sense that we have to maintain certain attentiveness to one another, care, much I guess is a congregational community, but 
uh, congregational community is close only certain hours a week and here we have to live 24 hours a day and seven days a week and, and such together and, and of course all human relationships are fraught by moments of, of frustration of uh, personal uh, affliction um, and how do we really such as in any family how do you maintain a loving family with all the variables and vicissitudes of daily life and in personal life and that drew me and my comrades we we're only 17 and 18 years old to martin buber we heard that martin buber has something to tell us about how we maintain a a life together that is more that is more attentive to one another in the the matrix of of everyday life how to create if you wish a, a community that is also bounded by familiar family love and i'll expand upon that because when we were 17, we didn't really know anything, couldn't understand Buber, uh, uh, but we pretended that we did. But what's crucial is that we had, he served to alert us to the need to understand the, the grammar of communal life, the grammar of interpersonal life. And that's a long time journey, of course. And, and eventually, uh, as, a, as a student, I did earn my uh, PhD in the United States at Brandeis University. I chose as my dissertation topic Buber's conception of community. It is a long struggle with him, and it's uh, been wedded to Buber, not only to Buber, but wedded to him since. Upon my return to Israel, I continued to work on Buber, but also practically. I was the president of the, the Jerusalem Interfaith Society, called the Rainbow Society, where Jews and Christians of all denominations, both Western and Eastern, and Muslims uh, are engaged in an attempt to create dialogue. That's uh, and dialogue is more than simply sharing faith experiences, but it's learning to to listen to one another. I'll expand upon that, but I think that's crucial. And that's also crucial to me as a parent, as a husband, as a friend. So Buber speaks to me not only as an academic. In fact, the academic engagement really blurs our understanding often of the real issues. Of course, you're wedded to footnotes and bibliographies as opposed to your fellow human beings. And it's, it's true as a teacher that you should your students, your teach, you know, your students are not only to acquire knowledge about a given topic, but to um, develop in the classroom and outside the classroom, spiritually and intellectually. Just a quick word uh, in German, which is the language I work in, uh, in addition to Hebrew and English, of course. The word for intellect is the same word for spirit. If our intellect is not wedded to our spirit, it becomes limp. And that's what I learned, I believe, from Buber. Our intellect must be part of our spiritual uh, maturation and, and sensibilities. So I want to go back to learning to listen. We often hear, but hear, listening is not the same thing as hearing. And that's the task of learning to listen to one another. And we listen not only with our ears, auditory, but also with our heart, if you wish. I just finished a book, on, uh, not a book, but on... I, I explore certain issues of how you acquire faith through the story of the little prince. Uh, you call the story of the little prince is learning to, live, to listen with one's heart. An adult somehow, the little prince is a little boy. <laughs> a diminutive individuals remain a, a child, so to speak, innocence of a child. He claims that adults have lost the ability to hear with their heart. And that's why I understand Buber's project, to learn to hear, listen with our heart. I can expand upon that, but you should feel to, uh, to address questions to me. <laughs> well, sure. Uh, I got I got a really basic question for most of our listeners. 
Who is Martin Buber? Ah, that's certainly true. Okay, I should have said that. <laughs> that is a basic question, indeed. He was born in, uh, in 1878 uh, in Vienna and passed away in Jerusalem in 1965. He was uh, formerly a, a literary man, a philosopher. But uh, as I understand Buber, he was a man who was searching throughout his life, his spiritual life and intellectual life, with some sense of interpersonal authenticity. He was a religious thinker, and I'll, I'll expand upon that, how he understands religion, and more precisely what we may call, and he called, religiosity. Religion is not only a formal affiliation to a religious practice, but a sensibility, a spiritual alertness, a spiritual presence, as he would say, which he comes, comes under the term religiosity. But it's an important distinction. Religion as a sociological, institutional affiliation. Did we lose him? I don't know. I believe he's frozen. I have restarted the <laughs> recording. Uh, we lost you. Does anybody remember what the last sentence was? Uh, let's see. We had just discussed uh, the distinction between religiosity and religion. and um... Yeah, it was somewhere in the, the sociology versus... Oh, yes. Of course, I was referring to... Buber's understanding, he was informed by others as well, of the distinction between institutional affiliation, being affiliated as a Jew, Muslim, Methodist, Baptist, whatever, which has a communal dimension, institutional identity, which may not be in accord with religiosity. And then I was suggesting that you as stewards of the Methodist tradition, as pastors, are responsible, I believe so, and I'm certain you are, are trying to cultivate religiosity within the context of your institutional setting, through your sermons, your teaching, your pastoral care. Um, Buber somehow felt that the hymn, religiosity, should also be part of a, the matrix of the substance of everyday life. He was highly influenced and inspired by a mystical Jewish tradition that emerged in, in the 16th, 17th century in, in Eastern Europe called Hasidism. Hasidism means those who are pious, and emphasize piety. But piety for them, as Buba understood especially, was not confined to the synagogue, but the way we live everyday life. And of course, it was a movement, I shouldn't say of course, of course to me, because I'm familiar with it, but <laughs> the teaching of, of, of the founder of this movement, a man named Baal Shem Tov, the man who possessed God's name in a firm and confident fashion, um, suggested that we can worship God, especially if we're poor and can't devote ourselves to, to study a prayer all day. We can worship God while walking in the forest, while actually going to a market. Not a fancy American market, but a local market where people struggle to buy, get the right tomatoes and the bananas, whatever I'm cooked, <laughs> as available. And they push the neighbors aside. I got the best bananas. How do you, in such a circumstance, life of everyday conflict, and, and needs uh, serve God. And that inspired Buber to explore the possibility of religiosity within uh, the framework of everyday life, within the, uh, the vicissitudes and difficulties of everyday life, especially if you're, you're not well-established and, and poor and have to struggle. And many people, of course, especially nowadays, we witness with, with the epidemic how difficult it is to maintain the semblance of an, an, order, an orderly life, a caring life within the fraught situation of, um, of uh, the virus. In Israel, we've had lockdowns, and we have to wear a mask, and I assume something similar in the States. And there's a lot of stress attendant to living in an age of epidemic loneliness, frustration, fear, anxiety, emotional conflict. So that's the challenge that Buber faced, and it took him time. 
he was a frightened individual. He was born with a twisted lip that made him very conscious as a child. He was frail, um, uncertain of himself. But that uncertainty was exacerbated by the fact that his mother left him and his father when she was he was only three years old, never bade him goodbye. And he lost his mother. Turned to her, Mom, where are you going? She never, never turned back. And that deep scar, a sense of loss, alerted him to the challenge of interpersonal sensibilities. It took him a long time to gain the courage. And he realized the courage that we have in relating to one another is, and entrusting ourselves is a gift that we give one another. So interpersonal relationships became crucial for Buber, understanding religiosity. And here you'll allow me <laughs> one theological reference. His famous book, and this is addressing the question, is biographical, who is Martin Buber? His famous book is called, and translated in English, is called I and Thou. And that was published when he was 46 years old, when he was already a mature man and went through a lot of struggles trying to figure out how to be, if you wish to say, a caring, well-grounded human being. And the book I and Thou has a very, it's translated from the German, and allow me one simple <laughs> academic, <laughs> I try not to be academic, but in German, you have two words for interpersonal you. In English, we only have one you, hi or you, but German has two words. One is a very formal one. It's called Z, capital Z-I-E, and it's meant to maintain a certain formality and even social distance, not in the sense of epidemics, but social distance, formality. And then there's another term for the interpersonal you, and it's called du, D-U, and it's reserved for parent and child, the closest of friends, and was really a uh, Presbyterian Scottish minister who translated first in 1936. They decided to render that D-U, that intimate noun word, which is the title of the book in German, ish and du, not the more formal, but the intimate, the theological term, thou. And why thou? It's very churchly. That's because the source of trust is God. Although God is the king of the universe, the father of all us, when we turn to God, is not with that formal Z, as you would think superficially, but with this more informal, intimate term, do. When we turn to God as God is the father, the source of, of our trust. The Hebrew term for faith, as it is in the Bible, is the word for trust. You have a Translated into English is amen. That's from the Hebrew word for faith, means trust. In English, it may be so. But if you think about it, it means we trust in what we just read and trust in what we just articulated in our prayer or we heard from our sermon. Amen. God is a source of trust. God created the world and behold, it is good and indeed very good, but often we experience it not so good. And we're reminded in the Hebrew tradition, which is shared with the Christian tradition and the Islamic tradition, that we're God's custodians in the world. We have to make render the world good. And that was Buba's task, how to render the world good and worthy of trusting one another. And trusting means um, caring, being attentive to one another. And that's what Buber called religiosity, a brief biographical <laughs> statement. Who was Buber? <laughs> so can I'm we talk sorry. a little bit about his um, his early adulthood and his early influences? Because he had a really, I think, incredible kind of breadth of various kinds of influences and friends and uh, unique characters in his life. And he, I'm, I'm sure, took a lot of his 
his his cues and his inspirations from the time he was living in. I mean, he lived through World War One and World War Two and these just very very pivotal global events. So, c- can we talk a little bit about that? Certainly, as is the case with each of us, there's a confluence between intellectual influences and existential. Existential means your your own personal experiences, and questions that you ask internally or uh, maybe not fully uh, articulate. And he was a very gifted individual intellectually, and he uh, he was at home in many, many languages, German, and then uh, Yiddish, which he spoke with his grandparents. And he went to school in Polish, where his grandparents lived on on the border of uh, of Poland and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and he, he was raised by them. And he acquired a sound knowledge in Greek and Latin as any educated European at the time. <laughs> but he also knew French and Italian. In fact, Italian was his favorite language. He and his wife and their two young children spent a year in Italy. And they came back with a, a woman who had served them or who lived with them. She spoke the purest Italian. And she lived with them throughout their li- her life. And Italian was the, the dinner language. Uh, his acquisitions of, of languages, of many, and of course, no Hebrew and rabbinic languages that are associated with traditional Jewish Jewish texts. Language is a way of entering the spiritual world of others. It's not suddenly having linguistic ability, but access to a, a multiple spiritual universes, which ultimately all join in one in the human experience, the fundamental human experience. We're diverse, and yet there's something that binds us, and that's our, our humanity, which unfortunately, given the, the wars that you mentioned, the crises that you mentioned, we often forget that. We, we, we oppose one another and we see one another as often as devils or benighted or lacking wisdom that, uh, that we claim to have. And one of the challenges that Buber faced as any thoughtful, caring human being in that time was how to overcome these divisions. Within Israel, the state of Israel and the country of Israel, he came to live in Israel in 1938, fleeing the Nazis, of course. He had the opportunity to flee. Many obviously didn't have the opportunity. He was deeply concerned about building a bridge between Jews and Arabs. And there's a real conflict, a conflict who, who owns the land, who has their sovereignty in the land. Claim. Um, and Buber was concerned about creating the, the possibility of shared sovereignty to overcome uh, division. Divisions can only fracture the soul of all parties that are part of the conflict. And that was one of the major themes of my own work is how to adapt or pursue Buber's teachings with regard to the Arab-Israeli conflict that it should no longer be a conflict, but somehow shared fraternity, especially in the Holy Land, which is holy to Jews and Christians and, and Muslims alike. And, and it shouldn't be that an arena of battle, of conflict, and of national egotism. So in brief, that is Buber. And he, since he went through all these crises and experienced the horrors of war, he realized how, how the political events that lead to war and, and, and the type of national hysteria that nationalistic hysteria, chauvinistic hysteria can, can lead to xenophobia, which means you brand the other as not just a fellow human being, but as an <laughs> evil person. This is what we call, forgive the term, but you probably know it from your own traditions, Manichaean, the forces of good against the forces of evil. And that can really only deepen human conflict and isolate one human being from the other. So going back to the original theme is how do we create a family of man, <laughs> of men and women? Especially today, Buber's wisdom about uh, religiosity and making connections um, and building relationship is the, the type of wisdom that we all need to be reminded of and heard. And I've had some friends that are often skeptical about that 
you know, everything will just be better if we all learn how to get along. And um, they compared it to the white liberal putting putting flowers in the barrels of guns sort of answer to make peace. But what does that mean, especially in the United States and people of color? You know, that sounds nice. But like, what does that even mean if we try and figure out how to get along? How do you think Boober could give some hope or some guidance to to those questions of folks who are just saying that relationships sound nice, but, you know, if, if I'm still looked as less and things don't change, like, what's the point? Right. First, just acknowledge the difficulty of establishing a, a genuine community, a genuine communal uh, relations. Uh, it's not magical and it's not through legislation and it's not through flags, but creating the spiritual sensibilities that I refer to as as religiosity, but that's a lifelong project that each individual has to struggle with. But the struggle that we have to, that is to be realized or achieved with our fellow human beings. If I be a little bit uh, academic, but it's just a way of addressing your question. Please do. Uh, with the advent of industrial urban society, which began to gain momentum in the 19th century, there was a, a sense that we're losing communal life or the small community life, the rural life, where solidarity was in small communities was understood. And as we watch into the modern world filled with entrepreneurial, personal ambition, we often lost that fabric of creating community. And that was a major concern, going back to the original question, intellectual influences or existential influences on Buber. And something's been lost with the modern world and there's no way of retrieving it. But Buber is... We can't really return to a small, rural, assembled modern world. The modern world also brings within within its track computers, ability to speak between South Carolina and Florida and elsewhere over the oceans and and the continents. I'm speaking to you from Jerusalem. You're uh, not only that, of course, in all areas, particularly in in medicine. Cannot ignore the modernity. So with context of modernity and all its conflicting demands on us, one of the problems I I encountered as a professor, particularly in the United States, uh, ambition demands, uh, overrides many of the students. And they become very anxious and competitive. And that doesn't allow for truly personal growth and certainly doesn't allow for genuine communal uh, affection and attention to one another. And it creates a a strong divide between those of intellect and those who are going to have PhDs and those who are street cleaners and the like. But genuine community is with everyone. Those who are disinherited, those who are infirm, those who have been abused because of the color of their skin or the cultural and ethnic background. And it has a very, my experience as a teacher, and I hope to be, I hope I am an attentive teacher. It can be very corrosive on the soul and interpersonal relationships of students, especially at a school like the University of Chicago, where I taught was very competitive, very aware that they have associated with close to 100 Nobel Prize winners in its on its faculty <laughs> over the years, a strong sense of elitism, and it creates a culture and sensibility that is pro- deeply problematic. But that's, you know, that's the modern world where ambition, personal enhancement overrides, often overrides other considerations. Just from my perspective, there's a strong, particularly in the United States, there is a strong like individualism like an individual identity as like a higher priority than community. You know, so we, we speak of like individual freedoms and things like that. And we, we speak significantly less t- 
to communal identity as a whole. And we, we really break it up even into smaller units. And I think originally that was to try to understand how communities are different from one another, but really then we just pit each other against one another all the time. That's uh, very well stated. And indeed it's the, it's the bane of the modern world is individualism. One of the questions that was written out for me is influence of Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a philosopher of the 19th century and his slogan was in various ways he expressed it, to be yourself, to be truly an individual. And that has problems. Of course, we're all interested in personal growth and uh, development, but it can also really fray fundamental concerns, fundamental bonds, even within families. I know families, Fortunately, it wasn't my own, and I believe it hasn't been my own, my, as I'm a, a parent and a grandparent, that pushed their children to be, and, and help cultivate this ambition, to be a doctor, a lawyer, to be su- successful. That's a code word, successful. And that can really be divisive. And then we're concerned about our relationships, which are bounded by where we live, the type of home we have, the neighborhoods we live in. And that's deeply problematic. If you cannot really address the postal man or postal woman as a fellow human being, even though you may have a PhD or a title professor or whatever, pastor, then you fail. Well, I, just speaking out of experience again, one of the issues, and John, you might be able, John and Sarah might be able to say more about this, is a challenge in our own faith tradition um, that we have to overcome is that our own denominational standards require United Methodist pastors to seek higher education degrees that are sometimes two levels higher than most of our parishioners. And so then like connecting is significantly more challenging in some ways. Right. Um, and it's something you have to overcome. John might have three degrees uh, more than some of his parishioners um, and Sarah too. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think though, if we're, taking the lesson from the conversation that's come so far is that there is a degree of humility that we should approach everything with a degree is just a sign that you've spent some time doing some extra reading, which you may or may not have learned something from. (laughs) I've known some folks who don't seem to have learned a lot from the process of getting their degrees always. And and so it's not something that is necessarily, you know, should be taken as a badge of some kind of social superiority. You know, it's something that... And I 100% agree with that. I'm just saying that paired with this individual competitive culture, we turn it into that. Right. And I mean, we are trained, I think, to do some virtue signaling around that. But, you know, it, it really also connects to the individual person's desires and how they choose to relate to one another. And I think part of what we're talking about here is learning to relate to one another and how when our social environment pushes us apart, how we learn to come back together. And sometimes that coming back together involves really focusing on empathy and compassion over all of the other aspects that we might choose to emphasize. Right. If I may just interject, I'm a Methodist, of course, but I don't have the responsibilities, the awesome responsibilities that you have as ministers. At the heart of uh, the biblical tradition to which we uh, all share 
you have those two commandments, commandments in the book of Leviticus. Love thy neighbor as thyself. To love the stranger, because you know what is to have been a stranger. What is crucial is, I believe, not only to personal, who is the neighbor. <laughs> it's not what Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher, religious philosopher. It's not the preferential love. Um, you know, we love certain people. We care about certain people. People who are, you just mentioned a football game of some sort. You know, who's on my team, who roots with me as opposed to those. Who don't. <laughs> That's preferential love or fresh, preferential camaraderie. Uh, we're supposed to love the person who happens to be next to us in a given moment. The German term that used by theologians and the Methodist uh, liturgy as well is the one who's next to us, but term for neighbor. Uh, not just somebody's a neighbor, in a preferential sense or a communal sense, uh, we're a residential neighbor, but a person who's particularly next to us in a given moment. We don't choose who that person's going to be. It could be a, a homeless person or a, a fellow PhD or whatever, a Nobel Prize winner, or simply someone who's struggling somehow to make sense of um, the demands of having a, a noble, glorious career. That is, and what is crucial about that statement? So, to love the neighbor as you would like the neighbor to love you, as you say, to love thy neighbor as thyself. To remember that you were strangers in Egypt's land. And Egypt's land, of course, is a metaphor for any moment of being isolated and abused. But recognition—that goes back to what you said about humility—is the humility is that I need your love as much as you <laughs> you need my love. We're all fundamentally in need of love, no matter what our position in life may be. Um, we all have an inner world. And that's what love is in the deepest sense, the familiar love, the, familiar, the love in your family, between you and your, your siblings, and between you and your parents. And we all have our ups and downs, of course. I mentioned, you mentioned you have a dog and a cat. Uh, what a difference why dogs and cats are crucial is because they don't have moods. <laughs> they, they come home, they run up to you and, and you and ask you to pet them or they lick you, whatever it may be. But fellow human beings have moods. You come home, oh, I'm tired, leave me alone, I have my own worries. We're not as re reliable and dependent as our cats and dogs are. How do we live with one another in such a sense? And we, and that's what love is about. It's not you know hugging, kissing, it's about being mutually care, uh, caring, as you said, empathy. Uh, and, and empathy means entering the, the world of the other, feeling his or her pain as much as you would like him or her to, to acknowledge your pain. And the pain is not only material, it's, it's spiritual and existential. And that's a lifelong task. It's not, there's no magical formula. <laughs> we just, we have to be attentive and learn to listen to ourselves, our own selves, souls, if you wish, and the souls of others. And that's Buddha's message, as I understand it. Uh, and it's not easy. Yeah, in your biography, I was really struck in particular by his friendship with Gustav Landauer. Am I saying that right? And Most definitely. <laughs> yeah, so, so Gustav Landauer, and especially the the first wartime when World War I was going on and everybody was kind of swept up in this German nationalism, and Buber was no exception to that, right? He he was kind of on the bandwagon too, and, and Landauer was the friend who pushed back against that and said, is this really what your priorities are? And so, you know, kind of helped him to discover something that is more oriented towards community and people than encouraging young men to go off and die in, ex in an extraordinarily bloody war. There are friendships in our lives or people we meet who are very 
seminal in their their influence or the way that they helped us mature intellectually, personally, and the like. And that was true of Gustav Landauer. Gustav Landauer uh, is almost an improbable relationship. He was close to six foot seven, and Bubu was barely foot foot two, five foot two. <laughs> but uh, there was a greater disparity than simply the, the physiognomy, the physical structure. Landauer was a man of extraordinary integrity. For instance, uh, like the prophet Hosea, he, he married a, a prostitute to help redeem her from uh, the humiliation of her, her station in life. And she perhaps Hosea too, reach out to the other by really trying to redeem them, a particular person, symbolically from um, the indignities of poverty and particularly if a woman has to sell her body in order to, to feed her, herself and her family and friends. So Gustav Landau was a man of great intellect. He was a uh, translator into modern German of Meister Eckhart. He was interested in religious literature as well as a student of Shakespeare. But he refused a, 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 an academic appointment and lived in the poorest neighborhoods of, of Berlin to be with the average person. And yet he and Buber met and became close friends. He was Buber's mentor. He was Buber's alter ego. As you read in the biography, he had a very powerful role in shaping Bubu's understanding of what it means to be a decent human being, <laughs> to overcome ambitions, expectations of his grandparents who were supporting financially. And that's one of the great problems. Your parents put a lot of money investing in you, you become a lawyer or whatever, and then you turn out to, to marry a prostitute in order to redeem her <laughs> and the like. You know, Bubu didn't have to do that. He, but he learned from Landauer uh, the quest for integrity intellectual, spiritual, and interpersonal integrity. And as I said, it took him to the age of 46 for all to crystallize. And for my, I'm, I'll be 80 in two, two months. Yes, two months. <laughs> I'm still going strong, but nonetheless, you have to acknowledge that. But 46 seems young, but obviously, perhaps from your perspective, it's still midlife. And to live without, with, with, we have in the Hebrew expression, especially on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we have, and actually a month prior to that, we have to have examine our souls and, um, and an accounting of our failures. As in tradition, Methodist tradition, we have two senses of sin, sins of commission, like things, stealing, robbing, whatever, and things that we lack to do, sins of omission. And uh, it's precisely the, the sins of omission that really should, according to Buber, demand our con atten uh, attention. We can be upright individuals, goes back to this previous question, but what we fail to do in order to heal ourselves together with others is the overarching concern. Uh, and that's that's the life of that everyday life. In previous in in interview, I, uh, I mentioned uh, my own hang-up, but maybe, so to speak, that's, I think that's the Merings. If you see a banana peel, today I saw uh, <laughs> stones on a, a pavement. And when no one is looking, because I don't want to embarrass myself, I pick up the banana peel and pick up the stones, lest someone gets hurt. And if I march on and forget about the banana peel and the stone that some an elderly person or anyone who may trip upon, that's a sin of, of omission. Now, that's a very obvious one, but there's omissions when you're, well, I tell you as a teacher, you know, students come to my office and they have real questions, not just academic questions. And if I tell them, I'm, well, I only have a half hour because I have a meeting or I have other students waiting, and I dismiss the, the questions that I know that are really palpitating in their heart, as opposed to those verbalized aspiring academics, then I fail that student. I fail myself as well. And how do you deal with that? It's not easy because I have only a half hour. How do you respond to another human being in need? 
and signal that you're attentive to their need. Anyway, that's we're all aware of that. That's um, that's the nitty gritty of everyday life, which is not defined by the, the doctrinal notions of sin. We obviously not the curse, not the lie, but the, the sins of omission, and to be aware of, of what is to be called upon within that ill-defined space of everyday life is the challenge. And that's the, that's what I learned from Buber, and I think that's what his message as fellow human beings and as individuals who are concerned with our accountability to, to God. And that's what we share in our relationship, that we're accountable ultimately to to God. I think the major sort of final question that I'd like to ask, especially after that that beautiful commentary on, on what Martin learned from uh, Gustav Landauer, is when we think about I and Thou, especially this this major sort of seminal work of Martin Buber's, what are the major sort of three to five points or takeaways that we can walk away from thinking about that as a an academic work and start to think about that as something that is practicable? Right. I don't think Buber meant it as an academic work, but he wanted to, towards the end of his life, he lived to the age of 86, died here in Jerusalem in 1965. By the way, two, two days ago, we celebrated his birthday. He's gone in February, and he died in, uh, in early January uh, 1965. But towards the end of his life, he was asked by philosophers, intellectuals, can you summarize your life's teaching? Uh, give us a term. But was, was hesitant to give it a term. And he said, all I've been doing basically is standing up, reaching out to you to join me, and look out the window. Look out the window and notice everyday reality uh, that we often ignore or overlook because we have our eyes set on big abstract concepts. And everyday world is uh, what he wanted to, and he realized how difficult it was. It's much easier to be a professor. I can show you. You, you, you're, you're studious and it's, and focus. You can write, get those footnotes in practice, and you write the books and uh, and get awarded and clapped uh, or applauded. But it's much more difficult to be a fellow human being on all levels, especially in the level of, uh, of neglect of one another, of those what we call sins of omission. So Buber's said, look, look out the window, not only in the books, <laughs> not only in the library. <laughs> we can't avoid you. Want, you obviously want to, in order to have a, a wholesome life for you, you and your family, you need obviously a profession, a career, etc. That should not really deflect us from what is really very crucial. And that is being, can I use the word? Because you're, you're ministers so, um, in the image of God. Uh, not the physical image of God, but the God is loving, caring. God seeks justice. God seeks that we should celebrate creation in all its mentions, dimensions. So I think you have summarized Buddha's teaching is how to translate that into not just pastoral sermonic statements, but into this into the challenge of being a human being of all these difficulties. We use the word humility, but we also have to be attentive to our own selves, our own failures, our own fears and torments. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment to see the world and what we might best do as a reaching out to others and engaging in broader conversation. Well, Every week, we try to close on a high point, and we like to ask everyone what's bringing them joy in the present moment, or at least what's getting them through the day. Uh, so, Dr. Mendez Flor, what's bringing you joy right now? Getting to know you and have the opportunity to share share thoughts, 
feelings, concerns with you. And I, I trust, although this is obviously a, a, a very strange way of communicating through <laughs> Zoom and cybernetic uh, wizardry, but certainly I was, first I sent you an invitation. Do you ever come to Jerusalem? You'll be more than welcome <laughs> uh, into my home. Sweet. <laughs> uh, you know, I just wrote a little essay on uh, on dialogue. Buber's concept of dialogue as a form of hospitality. Like referred back to uh, Abraham, you know, the free guests that passed by with wayfarers, and he saw that they were in the desert. They were thirsty and hungry, and he sought to bring them into his home to feed them and, and to quench their thirst. So the Hebrew term for hospitality, which is developed later, is to bring someone into your home, into your tent. And dialogue is a way of bringing someone into your tent, a form of hospitality. And of course, it's mutual. You would like them to reciprocate. So uh, that's the joy I've had in getting to meet, meeting you and your, and your colleagues. Um, and through, through you, perhaps meeting your, your community. And I say this sincerely. I don't mean it just to be sweet, whatever that may mean. mean it, but, so I thank you. And... Since I live in Jerusalem, I can say, God bless you. Thank you. Uh, John, why don't, why don't you share what's giving you joy right now? I honestly kind of want to copy yours. Um, this this conversation has brought me a lot of joy, even with our, our sort of uh, ever-present technical difficulties. But, you know, there was a time not so long ago where even having this conversation at all would have been completely impossible and it's just it's brought a lot of nourishment and wonder and just i don't know i don't have a really good word like a deep appreciation for things to my heart and so i want to thank you for what you've shared today and for your biography um you know martin buber a life of faith and descent was a really fun read for me and so I want to thank you for that, too, because it did bring me so much away. Uh, yeah, on that same note, this has been a wonderful conversation. And um, honestly, I hope we get to talk to you again. And if, if you ever uh, find okay, in, in, uh, in the southern United States, <laughs> okay, <laughs> come see it's us. It's probably more likely you'll come to Jerusalem one day. Much <laughs> more likely and hopeful. Um, I, I cannot have any um, if you have any follow-up questions or anybody in your community has a follow-up uh, question or concern, please feel free to contact me uh, through email. You have my email. Absolutely, we okay. will. Um, okay. Other than that, uh, my I have a, a father, a stepmother, and a mother. And my stepmother and father have had both of their vaccines, and my mom has had one. Oh, uh, that is my... Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that is... My happy. Oh well, right now. you know, certainly should be well, and, and all members of your communities. I, I wish them good health. Thank you. Uh, okay. And uh, personally, uh, it is really a joy for me, kind of in that same vein, Sarah, to see everyone communicating and celebrating when folks are able to get uh, vaccines. I know that several of my own colleagues here in Virginia have been able to get vaccines, and you know, I. We're all still waiting, um, and that's hard, but I'll celebrate with folks as much as I can. So it's giving me Indeed, joy. Please. Indeed. Thank you. Well, wish you all, I wish you all well. Indeed, Thank you. In every I wish sense. you all too. Thank you so much for making time for us. We really appreciate You're it. You're more than welcome. Okay. So. <laughs> uh,
God bless you. God bless you. All right, guys, this has been Logosish. We've had a wonderful conversation today. Uh, if you'd like to hear more and support the podcast, please like, subscribe, share wherever you can. You're welcome to send us a question at logosishpod at gmail.com. You can find us on social media, uh, wherever social media is sold. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and other social media at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the cool stuff that we're working on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. You can also check us out at logosish.com. Have a great week.